I'm Dr. Vanessa Sinclair, and this is Rendering Unconscious. My guest today is Dr. Derek Hook, professor of psychology at Duquesne University and psychoanalytic practitioner. Okay, so maybe three areas, then I'll, I'll speak a little bit about the, the conference and the related um, book series, uh, the uh, reading Black on the Tree, the books, the, the two that have come out so far. Um, and then maybe if we've got a bit of time, I'll also just speak about some of the more um, politically applied um, psychoanalysis, the Kenyan analysis um, that, that I've been working on, which is, which is more about uh, for non-racism, the South African context, which, you know, I don't know, listeners may find of some interest. So how does that sound? Wonderful. Okay, great. All right, so first is just to make mention of the uh, Lacan Zecree conference, which um, we'll be hosting here in Pittsburgh between the 11th of October and the 13th of October. So that's Friday, Saturday, Sunday. Um, we're pretty excited about the event. It's... Uh, we really organized a conference to launch um, the second of the volumes that Stan Van Herder, Callum Neal, and myself have edited with the title uh, Reading Black on the Cree. Um, the second of those volumes has just come out about a week ago. So that book will launch at the conference and we'll also have uh, copies of the, the, first, the first volume of that book. And I'll speak about those volumes in, in a little bit more detail. But just to say we have a, a, a terrific lineup, um, Annie Rogers, Patricia Gerovici, uh, Stephanie Swales, Bruce Fink will be also actually launching his, um, his new translation of Seminar 6. Mm. Um, Stan Van Hula, um, Callum Neal are also doing keynotes, and um, we've got a really nice spread of uh, clinicians, theoreticians, the Kenyan scholars um, from from North America and and, and Europe. Um, we're also hoping that we'll get um, some PhD students, um, and uh, yeah, that's getting pretty close now. So uh, there's a, there's a great conference website if people want to have a look at that. All you have to do is search for uh, Lacan's Cree Conference. Pittsburgh is probably a good idea as well. Um, and yeah, so that's that's kind of the big event on the horizon. And then maybe I'll just say a little bit about the, uh, the book series. The book series began actually maybe five or six years ago already, at least the ideas for it. Um, and, and Stain had suggested to me initially that he would like to do a series of um, definitive readings of the different sections of Lacan's Decree, um, which was a great idea because, you know, there's been several books that have done, well, actually not several. I mean, I can think of the Muller and Richardson, Lacan and Language, which was a kind of early text doing a similar kind of job. And um, that had always been, um, going back a little bit now, maybe 10, 15 years, that had always been the kind of lifesaver for me because, you know, you you jump into the Accree and unless you've got some kind of guide rails or some kind of reading group or some kind of expert guidance, it's it's really difficult to 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 make much headway. So I'd always loved the, the Mullen Richardson and always thought that it would be nice to have more expanded versions of those kinds of close text commentaries and readings. So that's that's what we try to do. Um, and then uh, we started inviting people to to contribute, 
And that wasn't an uncomplicated process because people often would prefer just to engage with one of Lacan's decrees uh, in, a, in a kind of more tangential way or, or do that en route to talking about their own work and their own ideas. But it wasn't that frequent that we'd find people who were willing to make a sustained, detailed engagement at a paragraph a paragraph level with the text. So um, some people initially wanted to do it, then didn't and fell away. Other people stuck with it, and a couple of people stuck with it so well that they ended up with full book-length manuscripts. Uh, I'm talking about Adrian Johnston and uh, and Danny Nobis, mm. which was delightful. But of course, we had to negotiate a certain issue there as well because their book-length manuscripts, which were absolutely fantastic, and um, you know, just particularly thinking of those chapters in the Acree that hadn't received. Um, detailed commentary uh, in English, because obviously by the time 2006 comes around and Bruce Fink has published the the complete translation, the full the full decree um, translation, books like Mullen Richardson and others that commented on on the more limited selected papers of the decree hadn't engaged with some of these uh, some of these decrees. Mm -hmm. So it was great to have the the lengthier versions, but um, it would have made a kind of lopsided volume of the series if in um, one of the reading Lacan's Decree titles we'd had uh, 70,000 words just on on the Freudian thing, whatever. So that took a little bit of um, negotiation with various publishers, but we were happy to both be able to bring out those two, uh, Adrian Johnson's book on the Freudian thing and Danny Nobis's book on Kant of Exard as, as full titles with another book series with, with Palgrave. Um, and then also have um, slightly shorter versions for the reading Lacan's Creed. But um, yeah, just to say that it's, it's been a um, rather tricky exercise in, in some respects, but a lot of the material we've got has been um, fantastic. And um, to my mind, I, I mean, I suppose it sounds like bragging or something, but I'm, I'm really happy that we've managed to get those books out there because getting that number of extensive um, commentaries, expositions for the full decree is not something that's existed before. Um, and I'm hoping it will encourage more engagements with the decree itself. Um, and, and also more, uh, I hope it's an encouragement to further elaborations and articulations that go beyond simply the comment commentary on texts. No, it's so, it's yeah. such a fantastic collection. And, um, I've decided that a couple episodes ago, I interviewed Todd McGowan about his chapter, the first chapter in the first collection, and I've decided that I want to go through each chapter and interview everybody who wrote in it because I think it's so important. Oh, okay, that'd be great. That's um, that's a terrific idea. And you know, funnily enough, um, Todd's chapter on, on uh, signification of the phallus, in a way, opens well. I suppose it does open the series, um, which. Of course, begs the question of like, you know, if you're doing a, a text by text reading of every text in, in, in a Cree, why start there? Um, but having said that, it's it's a terrific place to start because, I mean, you know, we're not going to have a competition about which is the most opaque uh, contribution to the Cree. But uh, signification of the phallus is something <clears throat> that in reading groups and with students and with fellow colleagues, um, you know, one tries to take a big bite sized chunk out of. But it it's. I don't know. I've always found it difficult um, to 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 really bring an, uh, uh, um, much out of that text. 
Um, in fact, it seems one of the, the contributions to the accrue that, at least to my mind, has within the field of, of social theory and uh, cultural critique and so on and so forth, invited so much projection that it, it's very few commentaries that I've read or engagements that I've read have been as um, concise and incisive as Todd's. And um, Todd's just done a, a great job with that, I think. Um, and it's it's particularly important, as it has turned out, it wasn't planned, that, but that his paper begins the book series because um, I mean, you know, it's harder to th it's hard to think of a more controversial Lacanian notion than the phallus, right? Or mm. a psychoanalytic notion than the phallus. Um, and I just think he does a great job in, in, in making the critical argument for the importance of a concept, which seems in many academic contexts that I've been involved in to be automatically derided and, and elided and, and dismissed from, from discussion. How did it turn out that that was the first? Because I asked him and he didn't know why. Um, well, there's a, there is a good explanation, but I figure if I give you the explanation, then the answer is known, and then we just deflate the enigma. Then so it's I think no fun anymore. Okay. <laughs> a longer. Um, and, uh, and, 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 yeah, I'll, perhaps we'll find an opportunity. Um, hey, Vanessa, are you coming to our conference? In, in Duquesne, I can't, no. But I want to, there has to be a, tell you the answer to the enigma. I know. But there has to be a third one for the third book, and it has to be in Scotland because that's where Callum is. So I want to definitely be at that one. Okay, okay. So that's that's the plan, actually. Hopefully that uh, we'll all get it together in Edinburgh. Um, and uh, that's an interesting topic in, in its own right. I mean, without going on too much of a tangent. But I remember years and years ago at in London, um, Bernard Burgoyne, uh did an interesting talk where he I don't know if he was he was trying to slightly polemicize the issue, but he was saying, wouldn't it be interesting if we could move the, uh, do an alternative genealogy of, of the development of psychoanalysis and move uh, the epicenter um, of this genealogical map to, to Edinburgh, I think he said, or I think it was somewhere in Scotland, presumably Edinburgh, rather than just always return to the notion of Vienna and, and Freud and all the rest of it, um, which was really kind of interesting. Anyway, sorry, that's, that's a little bit of a tangent, but the nice thing about trying to to have it in different locations like that is um, hopefully we'll be able to, at this coming conference, get a good contingent of North American Lacanians uh, and um, and at the following one, following up from the first conference that Stain organized um, in 2018 in Ghent, we'll, we'll have a, a, a good core European contingent which I suppose makes me think that maybe come 2021, we should go visit Australia or something. What do you think, Vanessa? I think that would be wonderful. Okay, so now we're cooking up a wicked plan. We just got to figure out who we give the, um, who we beg to host and organize something in. Uh... Actually, that's a good idea, but I'm thinking maybe New Zealand because I can think of someone there who might be willing to do it. Anyway, yeah, so... and the, there's a great analyst named Ingo Lambrecht in New Zealand that I'm sure would help. Uh, I wonder if she's listening and thinking, oh, my gosh, what's happening? These guys are cooking up a plan in public, and I've not even heard anything about it yet. But, okay, good. Let's let's ask her if she'll do it. Um, okay, so I've given, given you a little bit of a description of those those projects, the conference. Um, I, I could talk a little bit about some of the current work that I'm doing. Please but, do. Um, I, I mean, okay, so uh, one of the... the, air, the all right, so let me start with an anecdote. Um, I remember uh, starting to read, Lacan starting to read Freud, and particularly when it came around to notions of sexuation um, 
and and some of the the aligned concepts that we've made mention of already. No, you know, notions of the phallus, whatever. I remember whilst living in South Africa, thinking that for me, a lot of these concepts, although they didn't directly map onto these uh, axes, these dimensions of of otherness, difference, whatever, they seem also to me to speak to the dimension of race. Um, and in fact, in some respects, seem to me to be even more pertinent to that um, political axis of identification, more so than than sexuation. Now, I'm exaggerating slightly, but just just to say that it's it's an interesting question to ask how one picks up Lacanian theory in one in what political context with what particular priorities. So. Um, in, in many respects, I think after moving from South Africa to London um, and becoming uh, affiliated with a psychoanalytic training group there uh, and, and, and being involved in teaching and, and reading a lot of the material, I think then for a while I kind of stepped back from its more overt political application. But um, recently I find that uh, in trying to think certain political dilemmas, uh, I think Lacanian social theory is is just hugely important. Now, I know there's some debates here. So Bruce Fink, for example, and other colleagues might say, well, look, it's first and foremost a, a, a clinical vocabulary. It's, it's a set of clinical instruments. And funnily enough, I agree with that. I, I, I agree with that argument. And I think you could say that um, every time you, you think about trying to apply some of these concepts and utilize them outside the clinic, maybe you're on, you've got one foot on the potential of uh, a potential banana peel, and that banana peel is wild analysis, right? So I think that's true, um, and I, I take those critiques to heart. But there's other moments when I think it's absolutely essential to involve some kind of psychoanalytic or, or Lacanian theorization in terms of how to engage dimensions of, um, of power, um, of political questions, and so on and so forth. And, and maybe I could just give one brief example. Although, let me just also preface it by saying, I don't think it always necessarily works. Um, I think you can find bad attempts to apply psychoanalysis and Lacan to the, or less than successful attempts to apply, apply Lacan and um, psychoanalysis to the political field. And you can find ones that are more incisive and more useful. Um, but one of the, the pieces of work that I've, I've just finished up is um, a paper looking at the, uh, the uses Franz Fanon makes of particularly Lacanian psychoanalysis. Now, it's a bit of a complicated undertaking because, you know, there's been a fair amount of literature which has attempted to do that before. And uh, in the later 80s and early 90s, there was the heyday of Homi Baba, where there was very much an attempt in some ways to do a kind of Lacanian phenomenon. Um, but there's been a couple of recent publications, um, a book by Nigel Gibson and uh, a colleague called Beneduce, which looks at Fanon's work, uh, politics and psychiatry. And then recently, I think it only appeared last year, a book called Alienation and Freedom by Jean uh, Colfer and um, Robert Young, which collects a whole bunch of Fanon's very early psychiatric writings. And this became fascinating to me because I think since the heyday of the Homi Baba engagement with Fanon, there's been such a massive backlash against Lacan in, in, in some of that 
uh, critical race theory, post-colonial theory, and particularly in Fanon studies. And, and for a long time now, maybe going on as long as 20 years, um, my sense is, the, David Macy, funny enough, who wrote a book both on uh, a, a biography of Fanon and, interestingly, a fairly extensive engagement with Lacan earlier on in his career, he was a kind of figurehead of this by saying, no, you guys are trying to overly turn... Uh, uh, Fanon into a Lacanian, and you know, he just finds this all very problematic. So there's been this big backlash against trying to do Lacan and Fanon together. Um, and again, you know, one can be sympathetic to some of the critical reasons why that might be the case. Fanon himself is obviously highly critical of some applications of psychoanalysis. But it seems to me that the, the backlash was maybe too strong in as much as it, I think there really are some very interesting uses that Fanon makes of, of Lacan. Um, beyond the usual applications and theorizations of how we think he thinks the mirror stage. So I don't want to go into all the details of it, but what I started to do in trying to, to look at both the only recently translated and published um, uh, Fanon writings, particularly his PhD thesis, where he does engage some of Lacan's very early ideas in a very enthusiastic way, and I think in a, in a, in a sophisticated way as well, um, is that there's maybe more of Lacan in early Fanon than, than many Fanonian scholars have wanted to admit. Um, and then I think that there's some very promising and interesting contemporary work where um, Lacanian social theorists like Sheldon George, uh, for example, like David Marriott, um, are going and looking to see how you can use Lacan to further extend Lacanian forms, I mean, sorry, Fanonian forms of, of theorization. And just to cut a long story short, I think one of the very crucial areas where that has started to happen, certainly upon doing a, a kind of whatever, to use a silly word, a kind of meta-analysis of those studies, is I think Lacanian psychoanalysis and Freudian psychoanalysis done well and taken to the domain of Fanon and extending Fanon, helps us do something about, helps us analyze the, uh, the temporality of, of racism or gives us a way of mapping and conceiving racist temporality. And I think that's a crucial contribution. And it's not something that I've seen elsewhere in the literature, maybe with the isolated examples of a few phenomenological engagements with that topic. So, sorry, there's a long kind of uh, narrative rant, but, but just to say, um, for me, that has been one of the more promising ways of saying two things. One, maybe it's worthwhile thinking again how certain forms of decolonizing critique, non-included, um, might still be usefully uh, linked to or further articulated with facets of Lacanian social theory. That's number, point number one. And point number two is that if one does that in a, um, in a viable way, in an incisive way, one can start to broaden to further the, the, the array of conceptual um, critiques and forms of analysis. And for me, I think one of the places where contemporary Lacanians are doing that with Fanon is to think in a variety of different ways about what might constitute racist temporality, what racist temporality is in, uh, made up of, it, the operations of it, the modalities, interpolations, so on and so forth. So um, I suppose we could think of other examples, um, and I, I could give some other examples, but that, that's just one very promising place where um, Lacanian social theory can be linked to a kind of Fanonian agenda. And how are you applying this? Well, um, there, there are uh, a couple of papers that I've been 
that have recently come out. One is about um, uh, the notion of petrification. So thinking about um, the post-apartheid South African context, it, it, it's a place which is historically specific, obviously, um, which is different to other places. But oddly enough, the longer I live in the United States, I can start to see some quite striking parallels to uh, race politics, struggles, issues that occur in the post-apartheid context and in the highly racialized public sphere of, of the United States. Mm -hmm. um, so there, there are a couple of um, potential parallels there. Um, one, something that I've, I've um, just finished up work on is, is a paper on, on white anxiety. And I know that, you know, the concept of whiteness and whiteness studies is a, is a big one and it's gained momentum and it's, it's kind of omnipresent in critical race theory. Um, and I, I, I've tried to explore this literature and um, I think there's many valuable contributions there. But as part of the, I don't know, I suppose, uh, cultural norm of often, you know, kind of automatic rejection of, of many psychoanalytic concepts, I don't think there's been much by way of, or that I found a particularly um, useful uh, psychoanalytic engagement, or certainly Lacanian um, engagement with the notion of whiteness. Mm -hmm. So in this recent paper, what I do is I try to ask questions about um, what is the particular notion of, of white Fragility. So this is Robin DeAngelo's concept that she that she uses um, critically, very usefully, I think, in the United States. But my question is, well, is it always just fragility? She means multiple things by that. And of course, it is, I think, somewhat different in a South African context where whiteness is perhaps more on the back foot than it is in, in a place like the United States, where today, obviously, whiteness, of anything, seems to be on the uh, aggressively uh, oriented front foot position. Um, so my question then was, how would we conceptualize something like not just white fragility, but extend that notion of white fragility to ask about the phantasmatic dimensions of, of, of white fragility or, or the anxiety underlying formations of white fragility, particularly in South Africa. And um, one of the interesting elements that came through from that paper is uh, it made me suddenly think that district... Was it called District Nine? The movie. The District Nine is a nice example of of something of what's going on. Um, and one of the points that I tried to to make in that paper is is to collect a, a variety of texts from the public popular culture realm within South Africa that seem to ask the question of what will whiteness be now that it's very seriously threatened with the prospect of of no longer being able to persist. As in a hegemonic way, with a kind of hegemonic degree of dominance, um, and for me, that's—I don't know why. Maybe, maybe it's, it should be something that I find more, you know, threatening or disturbing or whatever. Being white myself, but I, I find it fascinating. This this negotiation and and a whole series of themes of um, posited extinction. Uh, and in fact, a colleague in South Africa had had done a presentation maybe two years ago now, where he had asked the question, "What would white suicide be?" And, um, you know, he was obviously doing this um, as a kind of uh, polemicized ethical uh, problematization rather than some, you know, kind of literal 
uh, imperative, but um, ended up receiving all sorts of death threats and, and really having a bad time because of that. Mm. But to me, it seemed like a nice ethical moment and a nice ethical problematization to really ask the question of, well, what does it mean if you invested phantasmatically in terms of your enjoyment in some notion of whiteness to actually come a little bit closer to the prospect of, of dealing with the situation of you may not be, or your whiteness, whatever you signify by that, may, may become itself a kind of persona non grata in the future. So it's difficult to, to communicate all of this if people aren't particularly familiar with that context. But um, in District 9, of course, we have this, this situation where there's the kind of Afrikaans-speaking white South African guy who gets involved in um, whatever agency is supposed to be dealing with these aliens. Um, and in the course of the film, he gets somehow infected by um, the prawns or whatever these guys are called and starts the transformation into one of them. And uh, thinking about it, it seems such a nice intersection point for, for three different texts. One, okay, you know, District 9, this kind of over-the-top sensationalizing, uh, kind of funny, uh, disturbing science fiction film. Number two, I mean, it's hard not to think of, of Kafka and, uh, you know, the metamorphosis into some kind of insect. Mm -hmm. and, and, of course, thirdly, the, the other intersection point, which from a Lacanian perspective is, is, is kind of funny but interesting and uh, I think fruitful actually, despite that it sounds so very contingent, is that the section right towards the end of, is it Seminar 9 or 10 before, well, Seminar 10's anxiety, right? So I think it must be towards the end of the identification seminar where Lacan first gives it this uh, little vignette of the, uh, the prey mantis. Um, and this anxiety-provoking situation, and of course he uses this as a, as a kind of paradigmatic example that he repeats again at the beginning of the anxiety seminar, this uh, terrifying, disturbing, um, ego-dissipating moment whereby you, the subject, come online, become aware, and you realize that you've got some kind of mask, something that fixed your face, you can't see what it is, but you can see through this apparent mask that there's a giant prey mantis looking at you. Now, you don't know if you're a, the mask is of a male prey mantis, which presumably is not a good sign. You don't know what's there. And so you have a crisis that is redoubled because it's not only a crisis of who I am, what is my identity, what's my imaginary visual identity in the situation, but you also have the very real crisis of like, will I perish? Will I be consumed here? And also, you could extend the argument, so it's not just the Lacanian imaginary and, and, and the Lacanian real, but it's also the, the symbolic domain of uh, what is my meaning here, what is my pertinence here. And of course, I'm arguing that that is precisely the kind of situation that many white South Africans, and presumably myself, certainly when I'm in South Africa, are negotiating that, that kind of triple uh, sense of uh, anxiety about well, what will my role be here? Um, what 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 can I do? do? Do I do I? What is the kind of contribution? And of course, in many post-colonial um, situations, you could say that 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 is a kind of subterranean question. Do I deserve to still be here? Um, and of course, maybe it's extended also with with a sense of the accountability um, of that which I typically avoid uh, cognizing, thinking about. But to cut a long story short, there we have it, a nice 
conceptual intersection between those three texts, which I think tells us something interesting or could be used in a profitable way to spark off some intuitions, some, some critical thoughts about um, a crises, uh, the crises or multiple crises of, of, of whiteness and white anxiety. But what I think was particularly interesting about how District 9 engages with this is that, and, and a series of other texts that are produced in, in the South African context particularly, is that um, Vickers, Vickers is the, the name of the guy who starts to do this transformation. He does start to have a transformation. He does become something else. Now, in other kind of science fiction texts and other um, uh, literary texts that come out of South Africa, those questions are obviously often underlined with a kind of racism, which implies this, oh, things have changed so much. Now look what we've lost. So you get this kind of uh, post-imperial nostalgia for what was. And even in a very different cultural context like the United Kingdom, I mean, I, I actually do think that's one way of reading the whole Brexit thing, that there's this kind of like narcissistic, narcissistic sense of a loss of greatness that now, and there's too much infiltration of, a, of, of other forms of identity which are watering down our whatever, our former sense of greatness, so on and so forth. Um, so when we do get into this whole genre of Armageddon, of apocalypse, of extinction, um, as it's theorized in, in, in cultural terms, it does sound like it brings with it more than its fair share of racist nostalgia, let us put it that way. But I think what might also be apparent in some of those kinds of texts is a sense that maybe one way of reading District 9 and other texts of this sort um, is not just to say, okay, you know, it's a quasi-racist text which is saying how good it was, but maybe it's an inv invitation of sorts to consider how identification and the identificatory investments in some imaginary notion of whiteness might indeed actually be fundamentally challenged and might in fact be challenged in a way which doesn't necessarily have to lead back to the knee-jerk reaction of reiterated, reaffirmed whiteness. In other words, how do those kind of science fiction texts open up the possibility that identification might be differently made? There might be different forms of identificatory investment. Um, so back to the colleague of mine who made this uh, comment about what would it mean to think conceptually about something like a gesture of white suicide. Obviously, it's polemical. Obviously, it's a little bit over the top. But I think in an interesting kind of way, that question does allow for... Uh, a thinking of what it would mean to be me where the conditions of being the me that I am now are no longer possible. And to bring that back to Lacanian theory, just in case everybody thought like, my gosh, this has taken us a fairly long way from our point of departure. Um, is it not the case that in Seminar 7, Lacan also asks this question or he gives us this, as it were, almost like an ethical challenge? Uh, and I, I'm not going to quote it directly because I, I can't remember it. But he, I think he says somewhere within Seminar 7 something like, um, a psychoanalysis that doesn't bring the subject closely to or very close to the question or let's not prevaricate here a, a, a psychoanalysis in which the, the analysand does not seriously confront the question of whether to, to live or to die or under what conditions life might go on is not really a successful analysis now again I mean maybe that's a little bit over the top um, but I think there is a similar kind of ethical opportunity, an echo of one reading of what Lacan says in Seminar 7 about a serious confrontation with one's sense of mortality and what 
what subjective destitution, in fact, might ultimately mean, and 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 what um, certain socially, politically, historically dominant groups, whiteness in particular, um, might need to to think, might need to facilitate, might need to wonder. Um, and it's a dangerous suggestion because the closer we get to a position where um, a previously dominant group is confronted with their mortality, with the fact that they might perish, with the assumption that they will not have some ongoing symbolic historical uh, viability, the more you do have, and I mean, this is another way of reading a whole Donald Trump situation, um, a very energetic, very aggressive, knee-jerk reaction, wanting to reassert one's dominance. So it's a risky political strategy. But on the other hand, if there is a possibility where the very the very presence of one's prospective end, extinction, mortality, uh, perishability, can be can be uh, facilitated, and 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 the subject can withstand that, um, withstand a fair injection of anxiety, and you know a, a kind of mortifying anxiety, but not but not ultimately do the knee-jerk reaction thing. I think that can be a very valuable political, societal, and indeed ethical moment of, of well, reflection is not quite the right word here, but a potential change in shifting. Mm. Ooh, sorry, uh, uh, you better ask me a question because that, like, oh, I'm now, uh, I'm running out of words, man. That was quite wordy and convoluted, so apologies for the long uh extensive thesis no it's actually very clear and it seems like that's what really needs to happen like what is this identity if not if not identified with oppressing others you know actually what was also maybe um every now and again i think well you know the psychoanalytic theory thing is is useful it, it's 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 helpful and it and it does uh genuinely I don't know why, but for me, this is particularly a kind of Lacanian um, possibility. It, it's so important for a type of ethical speculation. And I, I mean ethical here in a particular sense. I mean ethical in the sense of the potential change of the subject. Um, and it's funny because sometimes people, you know, you go to different universities or I do a talk or whatever, and people say like, oh, yeah, but okay, good. You know, what are your truth claims here? This sounds like you're doing something speculative. And I suppose for me, when when that question comes up, what's what's the epistemic uh, substance of your claims here? Um, it seems to me that one way of thinking the ongoing viability and importance, both of Lacanian theory more generally and Lacanian social theory, is precisely consider its role as a form of ethical uh, commentary and speculation. And again, by ethical commentary, what I mean is not to say that this is necessarily some kind of science, even it may not even be a speculative science as, as somewhere I think like on ruminates, but maybe that it's it's a kind of ethical discourse whereby one considers what it does mean or might mean for there to be some kind of change, both in the conditions of a given subject and in a, in a subject community. So, I mean, I hadn't really, I suppose, thought that through until speaking to you now, but for me, that's that's a very important trajectory or important element of, of how Lacanian theory might be utilized and also how it could be contextualized. Because I think, you know, perennially, the perennial problem is um, people, you know, you, you see psychoanalytic theory as this, this armature, this kind of super conceptual theorization, which 
which gives us these dazzling insights and critiques of this, this, this and that. Um, maybe, maybe. But I think for me, it's not so much about assembling, you know, uh, an absolute edifice of Lacanian social theory as much as seeing how it might allow us precisely that, a degree of um, ethical problematization and, and ethical questioning. Um, so, yeah, I kind of like that. Definitely. And I think it's really important now for, for psychoanalysis or for us to think about the political psychoanalytically in this ethical manner. Um, because I was at this conference recently here in Stockholm uh, that Lene Osted put together on uh, psychoanalysis and politics. And one of the conversations during that conference was about this kind of uh, reticence for psychoanalysis to speak about social issues and political issues and to kind of just maintain focus in in the clinic in the consulting room and you know different people had different perspectives on on that on both sides and like uh, if we should shift or not and I really think it's important to sp to speak about society more at this juncture in time yeah, I mean, it's, uh, I mean, th th I'm kind of maybe making kind of an adjacent point rather than speaking directly to that. But I suppose for me, once what one is clear about the parameters of what one is trying to do by utilizing that those those ideas, it's not so much to make proclamations about the essential structure of society or, you know, these these ongoing transhistorical uh, notions of whatever it may be. Um, you know, the, the trans-historical nature of the Oedipus complex or so on and so forth. Um, and funnily enough, talking about Fanon, he, of course, you know, uh, makes precisely that critique of psychoanalysis and interestingly uses Lacan to do it, which is kind of a nice, you know, footnote in the history of um, how Lacan himself is sometimes quite useful in a critique of, of certain what we might call excessive Freudian, Freudianisms or something. Mm. Um, but, yeah, uh, I think... I think it's much more about being able to say, if we're going to be able to use this, and we're cognizant of the the, the critique of what you know the, the more hardcore clinicians who don't think that this 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 language, these theories can accurately be uh, implemented or utilized outside the clinic. Maybe one way of doing that is to say that this isn't. We're not making huge truth claims here, but what we're using it for is in a speculative way, in a questioning way, to to precisely ask, well, what might be possible what might be the conditions of change um what might what might be the ethical role of psychoanalytic discourse to ask how things could shift and maybe even more importantly what are, what are those resistances to how things might shift and i think that that would be a useful contextualizing way to try to to try to utilize some lacanian ideas in in terms of of, of political discourse um, funnily enough, as, as I was speaking, I was also thinking there's such a nice case in point of how some kind of similar ideas to what I was talking about in terms of uh, whiteness and, uh, and and the recalcitrance of white identity and the phantasmatic investments in whiteness. Um, a, a very similar argument is made by Edward Said in the end of his the lecture he does at the Freud Museum. Um, and, you know, there's a little book of his on uh, uh, Freud and the non-European, and he does this interesting contrapuntal rereading of Moses and monotheism. And 
he basically makes the argument. He says, well, Freud's already there in some respect. And isn't it interesting how we can use Freud to read him today to think about some issues, particularly the uh, um, Israel-Palestinian crisis and um, and basically ends that text by saying, well, what does what is cosmopolitan? What might be the cosmopolitan? And one definition or one approach to thinking a cosmopolitan identity is precisely a, a wounded identity. Not necessarily wounded in, oh, I'm narcissistically wounded, look at me, my poor woundedness, but um, in, in the more precise sense of uh, avoiding a closure of identity. In other words, and I mean, this to me sounds like totally Lacanian, although he's not, he's not uh, articulating in those terms. The attractiveness in terms of imaginary closure of being able to settle upon a firm, substantiated image of of a seemingly resolved or uh, transparent identity unto oneself that gives one the, the, this kind of impression, this mirage of, of ego uh, cohesion, of an identity. This is the thing that, that um, Edward Said is, is saying, well, a, a model, a notion of woundedness, of, of non-closure, of openness, of, of constant openness um, that that is resistant to the seductions and attractions of um, uh, a closure of identity is precisely what he thinks works best as um, a model for a cosmopolitan identity. In other words, it's precisely a resistance to the charms of an imaginarized identity that might be closed, that might be definitive in what it means to be uh, whatever, American, a man, or, you know, whatever. And uh, I think that fits very well with some of the the ideas we've been we've been playing with. And I think what's also interesting about that, though, just to to add one last point, is Said also explicitly says um, something like, "This is not an identity which is ultimately comfortable. It's not uh, it's not a palliative. It's not something that will necessarily make one feel better about oneself. Um, but it it it's. I mean, if we were trying to do some kind of theoretical." Uh, uh, linking here, we might say, uh, or we might ask the question, what do we get if we put together um, Lacanian ideas of subjective destitution with something like Said's model of cosmopolitanism, um, or indeed with this notion of a kind of punctured whiteness or, or that I was speculating about earlier. And I think that's a good place to lead into your book, because I wanted to make sure to talk about your book, Six Moments in Lacan, Communication and Identification in Psycho Psychology and Psychoanalysis. Oh, great. Yeah, thanks. Um, okay, well, uh, yeah, that, um, it's, a, it's, a, it's a book. <laughs> um, I, uh, I sometimes, uh, you know, it's, it's, it's more of an introductory text in many respects, and I'm both proud of the book, but I also sometimes think, you know, the... the uh, colleagues who've you know done these more um, <clears throat> uh, intensive academic scholarly scrutiny of Lacanian texts or whatever, they, in in a way that that work seems to to move in a different realm altogether. Well, for me, the six moments in Lacan book was was very much an outcome of of teaching, um, trying to teach, hopefully with some success, uh, Lacanian ideas both at a um, undergrad level and at uh, a graduate level in contexts where uh, Lacan was just not otherwise on the table. So um, I started when I was teaching social psychology at the London School of Economics, which is not really a hotbed of Lacanian activity, as you can imagine. Um, 
so looking back on the book now, I, I'm proud of it in as much as I think it does a nice job of, of being able to to isolate six moments, um, you know, one of which would be, wow, people are always talking about the other and otherness and othering in psychology. But the one of the crucial of my arbitrary or semi-arbitrary six moments in Lacan would be to say, well, what, what do you mean when you talk about that? You talk about, and, and there's, a, there's a number of these concepts that I find and did find in the world of social psychology and, and psychology more generally, uh, and, and not just within the academic domain of psychology, but in, you know, the kind of popular domain of how people use psychological concepts. Otherness is one, subjectivity is another, identity is a third, um, and of course the list goes on. But what I think was useful about the book was saying, all right, we're going to try and do some work today. You come to class as a vi with a, a series of concepts that, although we may not realize it, have been fundamentally informed by everyday psychological notions. And that includes some psychoanalytic notions. How are, we going to, how are we going to rethink them? How do we give them a degree of analytical specificity? How do we add a, a degree of rigor here? How do we think differently about a whole variety of even quite mundane everyday events from, um, from a moment of finding a message in a bottle on a beach? You know, this kind of proverbial thing which comes up in, funny enough, there's a news item that's just come up, perhaps that's why it's, it's come into my mind. Um, uh, from that to the example of what is the function of monumental sculpture? Why why have monuments? What what are they there for? And um, once we've got those ideas, and I th in the book there were, there were a bunch of them. Okay, so identity I've mentioned, uh, the the notion of the other is another one. Subjectivity, um, basic ideas of communication would be um, a, a fourth. What does it mean once we start to take Lacanian theory to those? Well. At a first level, it's worth just noticing that the whole agenda of trying to take Lacanian psychoanalysis to psychology is a kind of catastrophic error. <laughs> um, not to say the book is a total disaster or anything like that, but um, it, th those two domains actually do not gel. Like they, there's a kind of non-relation between them. Um, that being said, it is then interesting to say, well, what happens when we we can use some very basic examples and, and start to employ the echo of Lacanian concepts where hitherto we've been relying on more um, everyday notions of whatever identification might be. So one brief example about that. Um, to say when in everyday society we say, well, oh, I really identify with that person. That seems to imply something more like a wishful emotional attachment or some kind of wished for affinity or or perceived affinity. And it, it doesn't really have very much to do with the, the psychoanalytic notion of an identification, which can occur at an unconscious level. And it may require, as in Freud's example of hysterical identifications, it may require no affinity. In fact, quite the opposite with the person with whom one has identified in some way. So one of the examples I like, uh, maybe around the two-thirds point in the book, is uh, an example taken from um, The Rest is Noise, Alex, Alec Ross's book about um, 20th century classical music. And he gives the example of, of uh, a young Adolf Hitler going off to a Mahler uh, performance and Hitler talking about how this had been one of the most moving and uh, musical experiences, artistic experiences in his life. And of course, then Ross points to the obvious contradiction. Mahler's Jewish. How do we find, how do we make sense of uh, the fact that Hitler may have 
found something quite crucial, uh, quite a, a crucial identificatory uh, moment or signifier in this performance. And Ross's example is, he says, isn't it interesting that when you watch footage of Hitler and how he uses his hands in certain ways, they seem to have an uncanny similarity to some of the gestures that uh, Mahler used as a conductor. So what's nice about this example is, okay, you know, we've known about this idea of identification, but somehow when we start to talk about a Lacanian concept like identification via a unary trait, we bring into play a whole series of very different ideas to what is, is commonly utilized when we start to think about um, in, in kind of lay psychological or psychologized ideas of identification. Um, and one of those crucial ideas is that identification doesn't necessarily connote affinity or likeness or a warm emotional attachment, um, but may in fact be unconscious and it may be formed and, and, and utilize an isolated single trait that becomes the basis for a broader type of identificatory function, which is not no longer reducible to, to Mahler, for example. Um, just one more example is uh, in, in much social psychology, there's a great deal of, of talk about what is subjectivity and what is intersubjectivity. In fact, intersubjectivity was for a while at least a very hot topic. And um, I find this interesting, but of course, if you if you do a bit of Lacanian work and, and you look at the, the famous logical time, the very early paper, Lacan's logical time paper, we start to see that for Lacan, it's not simply a matter of subjectivity and intersubjectivity, because it's easy enough to say that intersubjectivity needn't ever really fundamentally move beyond the terrain of imaginary intersubjectivity. Um, for Lacan, th those two concepts aren't going to be adequate. You need something else. You need something like uh, the transubjective. Or, put that differently, we don't want to think simply about the unconscious merely as something which is of the individual or that's uh, intrapsychic. Um, and neither do we want to think about the conscious unconscious as simply a collective unconscious in the Jungian sense. But we need a trans-individual unconscious to do justice to what Lacan is trying to think and trying to say. And I think that parallels in uh, several important ways this, this idea of what it means to think about the transubjective. And so for me, one of the very, very crucial moments in thinking Lacan's contribution to social theory and to a rethinking or critique of the psychological is the notion of the big other. Um, so we, we could <laughs> obviously spend a long time thinking about that. We, we don't have the time to do that here but i think that's that's a very important contribution and also then to take one step back on the book i think what the book does do pretty well and what i was trying to do with it is to say that by the time one starts talking about basically psychological ideas commonplace everyday cultural notions as well as the discipline of psychology one is ready bringing into play a whole series of prior assumptions and psychologized ideas about what identity subjectivity otherness is and what i think lacan is very useful for in this respect is to create that sense that there may be vitally different conceptual ways of approaching any number of these concepts from subjectivity to identification to communication um to otherness and and i think that is a very important critical opportunity and one that i hope um i hope that we could take up and, uh, and I hope that, that students who perhaps start in psychology might see that this is a very different set of concepts that could be utilized in a variety of different contexts.
Thank you for listening to Rendering Unconscious. You've just heard a discussion with Dr. Derek Hook, professor at Duquesne University in the Department of Psychology. For link to Dr. Hook's works, as well as the upcoming conference on Lacan's Ecree, please visit our website www.renderingunconscious.org. You can also visit my website, drvanessasinclair.net. Rendering Unconscious is also a book. Rendering Unconscious, Psychoanalytic Perspectives, Politics, and Poetry. Please visit our publisher's website, trapart.net. That's T-R-A-P-A-R-T dot net. Please support the podcast at our Patreon. You can find the link below or visit www.patreon.com slash V-A-N-E-S-S-A-2-3-C-A-R-L. Experimentations are taken directly from the third mind itself. But before we begin, I'd like to read a little something. And art set free, imagined a discourse of, smashed against a rock, mentor and a lasting influence. Some days I find solace in Freud's revolutionary human nature and they are forced. Or at least it is easier and focus in very, very tight. The situation We can expose the paradoxical nature of our life circumstances and discover Tantra, known to pain and theory. Jung had a reputation the same. The skin was thickly covered, often with a view of both analysis and desperate for change. Point toward the ways in which Tantra is preceded. She shattered a mask of my crime. Dream and body and voice. Inversion, isolation, reduplication, cancellation and displacement. But if we were to build on these subjective givens alone, however little free them from the condition of experience that makes us see them as partaking of the nature of a linguistic technique. I do mean atomic. Lungs leafing from branch to branch, jaguar form ahead of you, 
and waiting. With an invocation of sorts to situate ourselves and consecrate the space. I, thou, suggested the squamous covering of certain snakes. Below the waist, though, of writing into four quadrants and rearranging them. Foise and Sinclair explore ideas posited by Burroughs and Geisen and expand them. For example, Burroughs speaks about the essence of authors being in their words and encourages us to cut up our favorite writers and poets rearranging their own theories. Head moving up again, his planet and in this omniverse. Yes, I write, I read, I cast a spell. Hologram is now a being built differently, of course, at the stake. I wonder play if I listen to now. The third mind movements. Analysis, of course. We're so much of, but also commodified in. Immeasurable freedom sums me up. If I could represent. The cut up method performed without scissors. As you cut up in the texts of other writers, they become inextricably mixed with yours. Fade out to room. Yes, boys, that's me there. Bowles sits opposite. Something on your mind? Well, yes, you might say. The thought of some of my have strayed up here. Free-range country, maybe a little too free.